0: Hey, who is ready for a classic Stuff You Missed in History Class episode? In case you have not noticed or are very new to the show, these episodes that are showing up in your feed on Saturdays are ones from our back catalog that we are sharing so newer listeners can get a taste of some of the shows from years gone by. And
1: since we're soon to be in the Halloween season, which is my absolute favorite, uh, where we would normally share some creepy history, it seemed like maybe a good time to give you a little warm-up with a story about a sleepwalking killer named Albert Terrell.
0: This episode is really a story of the first time that sleepwalking was used as a legal defense. And you will find out how that worked out for Terrell in this episode. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: and welcome to our podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm
0: Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, have you ever had a bout of sleepwalking? I have never had a bout of of sleepwalking. My brother used to when he was very small. My parents had to put a lock on on his door so that they could get in in an emergency, but that he could not get out and injure himself, which is germane
1: to our podcast today. It totally is. Uh, The sleepwalking defense in criminal trials is not entirely un- uncommon in modern modern uh, trials. Medical and legal experts are continuing to study the validity of such claims.
0: And did you know sleepwalking crime is actually on the rise? It doesn't surprise me. It's one of those things where uh, as, as people become more aware of sleep disorders and sleepwalking disorders, both there's both the getting diagnosed increase and the use as a defense, whether accurate or not.
1: Yeah. And we also don't um, know if there is a cultural or social trigger. Some uh, experts in the field have posited that because we live in a sort of a more nervous, anxiety-laden culture, it's actually triggering more people to have sleepwalking disorders and sleep disorders in general. So we don't know the exact root of why those are on the rise. Those three things are all factors. Uh, But in 1846, it was completely unheard of to claim sleepwalking as a defense. No, no one had used that ever. Until Albert J. Terrell, who was on trial, and his lawyer, Rufus Choach, who took a really unorthodox approach to uh, defending his client.
0: Yeah, and for the time, it was so out of left field that it was almost like that it wasn't me. Like, yeah, yeah, you saw me do it, but that was not me. But nobody did see him do it, which yeah. comes up in the trial. Uh, so the crime
1: uh, took place on October 27th of 1845, and Mrs. Mary Ann Bickford's body was found in a seedy boarding house uh, in Beacon Hill in Boston. She was only 21, and her body was found on the bed, partially on the bed, partially on the floor. Uh, there are different illustrations you can see online that kind of... Um, put her in slightly different places, and there's an account that comes up in the trial where they describe part of her body being on the floor. She was in a nightgown, and she had a wound to the neck that had nearly decapitated her. Uh, The bed had been set on fire, as well as two other places in the room, and Bickford's hair and skin were singed and burnt. Uh, An earring was missing from one of her ears, which was split open as though it had been pulled out, and there was a straight razor at the foot of the bed. Which is a pretty grisly scene.
0: It is pretty grisly and and a lot, there's a lot going on there. Uh, Albert Terrell had been seen with her earlier that evening and a witness account also described him speaking with a stable keeper to try to get transport away from the city.
1: Now, to give a little bit of background on these two, because this was not a pairing that was unknown already. That was not her first encounter with uh, Terrell by any means. So they were actually known to be engaged in an affair. Both of them were married. Uh, Bickford, who also went by Maria and some other pseudonyms at different times, had gotten a taste for city life when she was visiting uh, relatives. And she actually left her husband, who was in Maine, to stay in the city permanently. And she had even written him a letter and said, You can come and live in the city, but I'm, an, and we'll be husband and wife, but I'm gonna need my freedom. Kind of saying, like, I will play the part of wife, but I'm not really married to you. In my heart. Uh, so, at one point, her husband James actually traveled to Boston to look for her, discovered her working in a brothel, and headed back to Maine by himself. Uh, and in court proceedings, the prosecution stated at one point that she had actually moved to Boston with a paramour that she had presumably met on that first visit to the city that was obviously not her husband. Uh, and then that man deserted her, which is what led her to prostitution.
0: So Mary had met Albert Terrell while working, and the two of them had started a very intense relationship. People described it as both passionate and volatile. They traveled together as a married couple, even though she was already married, and he also was married and had a wife and a family.
1: Uh, and on September 29th, 1845, which was one month before the murder, Terrell had actually been charged with adultery. His trial was delayed for half a year uh, for six months after friends and relatives and even his wife actually petitioned the court to delay the proceedings because they wanted to all work together to help Albert reform his ways. And they thought if he could, you know, prove he was a good citizen for six months and then go back on the adultery charge, even if he um, was found guilty of it, they would be a little more lenient because he was clearly trying to mend his ways. And the delay was granted. And then uh, Albert was released after, you know, uh, posting Bond, and he went right back to Marianne
0: Bickford. (laughs) Yes. So that's sort of the history of of them as a couple. Uh, When Terrell ran from Boston after the murder happened, he went to hide with relatives in Weymouth. Uh, Then he went north to Canada to get passage aboard a ship to go to Liverpool. That voyage had to turn back because of bad weather, and he got on a second ship in New York to go to New Orleans. Uh, On December 5th, he was arrested after a Louisiana authorities got a tip that he was aboard a vessel in the Gulf. So
1: at that point, he's in custody and he was transported back to Boston for the trial And he hired... Terrell, we should note, was uh, not a poor man. He had some wealth. His family was well-established in the shoe manufacturer trade. And he hired Rufus Choate, who was a protege of Daniel Webster as his defense. And Choate was already a very high-profile figure with both a political and legal career. He had served on the Massachusetts State House of Representatives and the State Senate. He had been a member of the 22nd and 23rd Congress. He was well-respected in legal circles... Uh, so it was really like the equivalent of hiring a pretty heavy hitter lawyer today. Uh, everybody would have known who he was. And Choke conceived of this novel defense for his client, claiming that, in fact, Albert was a somnambulist and that he performed the entire murder in a sleepwalking trance. Now, that wasn't his only defense. He also tried to discredit the possibility that he had even committed the murder. But that was w- sort of one of the new and novel ways that he defended his client.
0: Right, the, the proceedings started on March 24th, 1846, and according to court records, the judges were Judges Wilds, Hubbard, and Dewey. Uh, a Judge Shaw was also scheduled to be there, but he was out sick. Representing the Commonwealth was Samuel D. Parker, and for Terrell, Rufus Choate, and Annis and A.B. Merrill Esquire. Jurors were very
1: quickly selected that morning. Uh, if you read the Boston Daily Times account, it seems like they really whipped through, like, voir dire and additional questioning really, really quickly. It took about half an hour, according to that reporter's account of it, to select the entire jury, which if you have ever done jury duty, it never takes just half an hour to get everybody settled. So that was pretty expedient. And then Parker's opening arguments... Uh, included a plea to the jurors to disregard any bias that they might have as a result of hearing rumors about the deceased. Bickford's profession as a woman of the night was not really helping the case, but he openly acknowledged what uh, he called, quote, her depraved character. But he reminded the jurors present that the law protects even the wicked as well as the good when it comes to murder.
0: Parker also asserted that Terrell, who was the son of a really successful shoe manufacturer, had had to get married very young, at the age of 18, because he had probably gotten his girlfriend pregnant. He stated, The cause of so early a marriage in his minority, I need not state. That's part of an overall scheme to kind of chip away at Terrell's moral image, showing that he was impetuous and given to impulsive and wanton behavior.
1: Parker further claimed that Bickford had actually been afraid of Terrell after his adultery arrest because she was scared that he would be angry that their relationship had gotten him into such trouble. Because at that point, it was very public what was going on. And again, there were many, many people petitioning the courts, So everyone knew his business at that point. Uh, The prosecution also painted a picture of the events leading up to the discovery of Bickford's body. Uh... First, it mentioned the pair being seen together in the days and on the night leading up to the murder. Two, uh, uh, describes a faint shriek coming from Bickford's room early in the morning. Three, the sound of something falling to the floor. Four, a person running, then tumbling down the stairs, then being heard leaving the house. Five, was a groan or scream of fire, and residents in a nearby room seeing smoke come under their door. And then six, Mrs. Lawrence, who uh, was of the family living below those rooms, coming up the stairs to find burning bedclothes piled at the top of the stairs and against the door of the other boarder's room. And then seven, help arriving in the room of Mrs. Bickford being extinguished because it was on fire. And then the realization that an item that had been stumbled over in the rush to put out the fires, there was a fire in the closet, on the bed, and in a clothing trunk, was, in fact, the body of Mary Bickford. So, at first, they didn't realize there had been a murder. They just knew there was a fire which they were putting out, and then they realized, like, this person has been gruesomely killed.
0: Right. There was additional evidence, also. Uh, There was no fire in the fireplace, so it could not be explained as... An accident. An accident uh, of the fire used in the room getting out of control. A man's apparel, which consisted of a vest, drawers, socks, and a cane, were found in the room... The razor that was found near the body didn't belong to anyone who was in the house. Uh, And then there was the interchange at the stable that we talked about earlier. uh, Terrell was reported to have told the man that he was, quote, in a scrape about a girl. And then after that opening
1: on Parker's part, witnesses were called for the prosecution. And there were many called. We won't list all of them, but some of the the really germane points that sort of brought in new information uh, or corroborated specific elements of information that are important to the sleepwalking angle. So first, uh, Jabez Pratt, who was the coroner, confirmed statements from the opening and added that he had also found a ring in the room with the inscription AJT to MAB, presumably Albert uh, Terrell to Marianne Pickford. And Pratt had also found keys in the pocket of the vest that was in the room, which unlocked a valise and a trunk, which were believed to have belonged to Terrell.
0: Another witness was Dr. Joseph Moriarty, and he talked about the wound to Bickford's neck as being from ear to ear and separating the larynx and the blood vessels. He also said that it would be possible to for a person to perform this at one stroke on herself. And he stated he never knew a person to commit murder on another person with a razor. So it's kind of a weird witness for the prosecution to call. It is.
1: And I I was looking over the notes of the case that were published in the Boston Daily Times and I kept rereading that passage thinking, did they really call a witness that said she could have done it to herself? But they really did uh, for a reason I can't fathom. Uh, Although I think their initial plan was just to describe the severity of the wound. Right. So he may or may not have surprised them with those additional comments. They also called a Joel Lawrence, who owned the house where Mary was killed, and he confirm- confirmed that a cravat that was found in the burning room was one that he had seen Terrell wear previously.
0: There was also James Fulham, who was the stable keeper, and he said that Terrell had told him that somebody had come into the room and tried to murder him. So we're
1: establishing a lot of... Incongruent comments on Terrell's part. Right. Uh, additional witnesses were called, primarily just to corroborate what had been said in the opening, like the the list of things that happened leading up to the discovery. And uh, several were called just to establish the relationship between the deceased and the accused as being romantic and volatile in nature.
0: So there was also the testimony of Mrs. Mary Head, who described an odd encounter with Terrell. During which he seemed out of sorts and almost asleep, and he also made a bizarre sound with his throat. Do you know more about that? I do. It will come. It will come up. Uh,
1: just remember that the opening argument for the defense had some interesting points, and it was delivered not by Mr. Choate but by his associate, Mr. Merrill. And he, one of the quotes from. His opening is, it does not follow that because a body has been found exhibiting indications of violent death that a murder has therefore been committed. His argument was very focused on the beyond reasonable doubt angle of finding guilt. And he suggested that the clothing found in the room could have belonged to another man or it could have been Terrell's, but because he was known to stay with Bickford quite often, it could have been left there at any time, not necessarily the night of the murder.
0: He also wanted to dispel the idea that, that running meant that he was guilty so he asked are not innocent men often being often afraid of being thought guilty
1: Merrill also read a list of cases where men had been found guilty and executed entirely on circumstantial evidence so again they're building m- multiple angles to the case and one is that no one actually saw him do it
0: He also asserted that if Terrell had wanted to kill Bickford, he had ample opportunity in their travels together before this particular night. Uh, There
1: was also a little bit of a character assassination going on against Bickford. She was characterized by Meryl in the opening as something of a beguiling siren and that she used her wiles to infatuate Terrell and that's what caused him to leave behind his family and turn to her.
0: So after all of those layers of defense... Merrill introduced the somnambulism defense, orating at length about the nature of the condition and reading a variety of cases and medical studies to support what he was trying to say.
1: And according to the Boston Daily Times, Merrill's opening lasted two hours and 45 minutes. There was a lunch break in the middle. And according to the reporter was, quote, full of ability and research throughout. So he was uh, impressive, apparently, in his open. Right. And then witnesses for the defense were called, the first of which was Mrs. Nabby Tyrrell, who was the widow of Leonard Tyrrell and the mother of the defendant. And she testified that Albert had been, quote, in the habit of getting up in his sleep since he was 4 or 5 years old. And she described several episodes from the time he was tiny until he um was a teenager and then was a young man on his own and left, right? So the time she he lived with her, she described multiple episodes. Uh, where he would go on walkabouts and do things completely asleep.
0: Albert's brother, Leonard B. Terrell, also gave testimony that Albert was prone to wakeful episodes while he was still asleep and that during some of them, he, he quote, clenched hold of me very hard and it was difficult to force his hands off of me.
1: Uh, additionally, family and neighbors uh, of the Terrell family were called to testify that they had also seen Albert in somnambulist states, some even asserting that they had interacted with him during these events and found him able to speak and even answer questions but still seem asleep.
0: The defense attempted to introduce a complaint mentioned by Mary Bickford that Terrell had at one point struck her across the breast forcefully while he was asleep. But it was ruled out as, quote, coming within the rule of, de- of declarations. So they couldn't get a sworn testimony from the deceased to back up this claim. Right.
1: Uh, and most witnesses also were used to establish the idea that Albert was, in fact, really quite fond of Mary and treated her very con- kindly, that he was genuinely in love with her. Uh, and a doctor, E.O. Finney was called, there were several doctors called for the defense, but he testified that the fatal wound could have been suicide or murder. Uh, witness Dr. Walter Channing also testified that he had knowledge of women committing suicide in this manner and had also read about it happening just in his uh, career studies and in, you know, um, journals and staying on abreast of the information of the time.
0: Right. Several other doctors were called to corroborate the argument that a person could easily commit a murder while sleepwalking.
1: And one thing that Choate and his associates repeatedly established was that when Albert was sleepwalking, he would make an odd vocal sound, similar to the one described by Mrs. Mary Head when she was on the stand as a witness for the prosecution. So they kind of artfully linked that back to, you remember that other person that said he seemed really odd and made a weird clicking sound in his throat? That's what he does when he sleepwalks. We've established he has, like an ability to sleepwalk and do things in his sleep.
0: So on Friday, March twenty seventh, 1846, the defense made closing arguments. Choate's closing statement was six hours long. Yeah, all day, pretty much. I feel like that's a filibuster, almost. <laughs> he was known as an orator, uh,
1: and there are some accounts that talk about how astounding it is that he could go on for such length, but he never seemed to lose the thread or focus of his speeches. So he had a lot to say, and
0: it took him six hours to say it. Yes, his, his testimony included the following. How far does the testimony lead you? Did any human being see the prisoner strike the blow? No. Did any human being see him in that house after nine o'clock the previous evening? No. Did any human being see him run from the house? No. Did any human being see him with a drop of blood upon his hands? No. Can anyone say that on that night he was not laboring under a disease to which he was subject from his youth? No. Has he ever made a confession of the deed to thi- to friend or thief-taker? Not one word. So, uh... That was part of the six-hour
1: closing statement. And Choate finished at about 425 in the afternoon. And after a brief recess, Mr. Parker made his closing argument, summating his case, pretty much just repeating what had come up throughout the, the trial. And he wrapped up at 650. And Albert Terrell waived his option to address the jury, and the court was adjourned until
0: Saturday, the following day. On Saturday morning, Judge Dewey addressed the jury at length. On the somnambulism issue, he said, quote, "Medical testimony is very properly admitted in these cases, but it should be weighed carefully. It is dangerous to admit the possession of this disease, lest in the reveries of our brains the possessors might commit deeds which in others would be high crimes."
1: So, after just two hours of deliberation, uh, at ten minutes to one o'clock, the jury returned with their verdict, which was not guilty. And the foreman of the jury actually stated, though, that the question, and I quote, the question of somnambulism had not entered into the consideration of the jury. So even with the sleepwalking defense, it seems like the circumstantial nature of the evidence was actually what hurt the prosecution. However, (laughs) this case is usually cited as the first use of the sleepwalking defense and is characterized as though that's the reason for the
0: acquittal. But the jury foreman said that wasn't even really a factor for them. Terrell was also tried for the arson charges that were associated with the night of the murder. Choate defended him again with the same defense and used many of the same witnesses, and he was once again acquitted.
1: Perhaps emboldened by these two successes? Terrell actually, this is so brazen, requested that Choate refund half of his fees, as the case had both cases had obviously been one with greater ease than expected. Uh, Choate, of course, refused. However... He didn't get off on everything. Terrell was uh, convicted of adultery and ended up serving three years for it. Uh, and after that, he returned to his wife and children in Weymouth. And he lived out his days working in the family business of shoe manufacturer. He could never hang on to any of his money. They did have another child. Uh, but that was sort of his uh, his life after the trial got pretty quiet. After his trials and his time. He went home again. Mm-hmm. And Choate continued his impressive legal career, and he continued to be involved with politics, uh, which could be a whole other podcast because he really was at the nexus point of a lot of important moments. But what's interesting to think about is that from a modern perspective, would this defense have really held water? And we know people use the sleepwalking defense in modern times. There's a famous case uh, from Canada from the late 80s where a man had... Driven, I think, 14 miles, killed his in-laws, and woke up while he was driving home, and drove himself to the police station, and he was actually acquitted. So we know these still come up, and there are still some, you know, that come up even more modern than that. They don't always succeed, though. Uh, and a Michael Kramer Bornman, who is uh, a medical direct, uh, doctor and a medical director of the Cardio Sleep Services at the University of Minnesota. Uh, was interviewed by Focus Magazine, and he said of sleepwalking disorders, something in the switch between phases goes wrong, creating an aberrant electrical impulse that triggers an overlap between states. You're not fully in REM, so your muscles are relaxed, not paralyzed, and you're not fully in non-REM, so you can still be dreaming. In this state, some of the brain's processes will be awake while others
0: are offline. Why does that lead to violent
1: behavior, you ask?
0: Yes, he continues. As with many things in neuropathology, it's to do with real estate. Brain structures like the hypothalamus that regulate sleep sit next to the midbrain where early evolved behaviors lie. So when this electrical impulse is sparked, it also wakes up this part of the brain, leaving the moral areas like the frontal cortex asleep. That leaves nothing to inhibit your rage reaction while you're sleepwalking.
1: And that's why people are advised to never wake a sleepwalker. Because their, their reaction may not be delightful or pleasant. It's completely not, um, in any way, uh, dampened by their morality. So they could do something without even realizing it. Right. But some of Terrell's behaviors, like the fire to conceal evidence and running and hiding, Uh, are not consistent with sleepwalking actions as we now understand them. And if he had not tried to include that in his defense, you could make the case, but he used the same defense in his arson trial.
0: Right, right. So it's feasible from a neurological perspective that a sleepwalker could kill another person while asleep, but that then attempting to conceal evidence while asleep. Unlikely. That's that's (laughs) much less likely. Yeah. Uh...
1: So if he were tried today and used the sleepwalking defense particularly for the arson element, he would probably not fare so well since that was part of the concealment uh, of the crime. So that's the first in the US anyway, sleepwalking defense, and it was successful.
0: Yes. Have you seen the movie Sleepwalk with me? Yes. It, it's just reminded me of that and and how alarmed he is when he hears that that people while sleepwalking when having sleep disorders. Yeah have either inadvertently or sort of acting out a rage impulse killed the person that that they were sleeping with.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I always worry secretly that I will one day magically begin sleepwalking and doing bad things. That's a little weird fear of mine. (laughs) Uh, these episodes that we're sharing are past classics. Uh, we have some updated information that will supersede the contact stuff you've heard before. If you want to email us, our email address is historypodcast at houseofworks dot com, and you can find us across the spectrum of social media as Mist in History. You can also find us at mistinhistory dot com, and you can visit our parent company, House of Works, at houseofworks dot com.